0: Hello and welcome from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This podcast you're about to hear was recorded at our Burrigan campus. So sit back, relax, and enjoy what God has to say to you. Jesus, we thank you for the power in your name, that your name will break every stronghold, that there is life and freedom in your name. We speak the name of Jesus over this place. We speak the name of Jesus over each and every person here that we might have freedom in your name. That you might truly break strongholds. Any ground that we've given to the enemy in our lives. Any unforgiveness that we might be holding on to. Any hurt. Anywhere, any sin that we might have allowed the enemy to get, a, get ground in our life. We pray the name of Jesus over each and every person here that we might stand as free people. In Jesus' name, freedom is found. We thank you for that. Speak the name of Jesus over this place. And we ask that now, Jesus, that you would speak to us Through the power of your word, and by your spirit, Jesus, would you speak? Give us ears to hear, hearts that are open. As Michael prayed, fertile soil, that our hearts might be fertile soil. This we pray for in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. amen, amen. You can take a seat. Fantastic. Well, good morning, everyone. And welcome to church. It's wonderful to be here and to pick up where Jonathan left off as we continue our series in the name. Uh, My topic this morning is prayer, but I actually think the focus of our passage here this morning in John chapter 14 is relationship. Jesus says to Philip, don't you know me? After all this time, don't, don't you know me? It's the critical line in this passage. And truth is, and I think we would all know this, you can know a whole lot about someone and not actually know them. Graham said the exact thing to our young adults in our retreat just this last weekend. So I love the NBA, and and my favorite player is Steph Curry, and I think it's fair to say that I know, know at least a bit about him. I know that he's the greatest shooter of all time, I can tell you that. That's a fact. Literally changed the game. I know that he was drafted in 09. I know that he has four rings, four championships, and where's the number 30. I even know that he's a believer because he talks about his relationship with the Lord all the time. I know a bunch of things about Steph Curry, but I don't know him. There's no relationship there. There's no foundation of trust built up over time and there's certainly no sense of intimacy. I'm a fan I know things about him, but I, I don't know him. I, I know my wife, but I'm a f- fan of her too, by the way. But the <laughs> difference is I, I really know her. A third of my life has been spent with that woman. A third of my life. I got young, married pretty young, so that's probably cheating. But a third of my life has been married to that woman. The ups and downs, we've been through it all. Uh, I know what she's passionate about. I know what makes her angry. It's usually me. That's probably fair. (laughs) I even know what a love language is. I'm not saying that I'm good at it, but I'm just saying I know what it is, and that seems like a start. Can I get an amen from all the men in the room? We're trying, okay? We know, and it's a start. The Lord's got work to do. I know what it is. I know her. I know her heart. I know her character and nature. I know her. I mean, the unmistakable truth of this passage this morning is that Jesus is saying to each and every one of us here this morning, I want you to know me like that. Not, not like, like you know Steph Curry. No, I want you to know me like that. And you might be thinking, well, what does that have to do with prayer? Well, I can tell you right now, it transforms our understanding of what it means to pray in his name. That the level of intimacy and relationship transforms your understanding of what that means. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. But I want to start by giving you some context. You see, the backdrop of our passage this morning is actually the Last Supper. It's actually the the backdrop of this entire section. John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16 all take place in the upper room as Jesus eats his last meal with the disciples. But well, that's not obvious to us, because our Bibles have chapter breaks and headings over different sections, which can sometimes trick us into thinking that these are separate, distinct moments in time, but that's not true. Well, this entire section, 13 through to 16, all take place during the Last Supper. So I want you to picture that. That's the background. Jesus' public ministry is over. And the people have already rejected him. So this is happening behind closed doors with the 12 who left everything to follow him. And you need to know the mood was grim. Grim. If we want to understand this passage, we want to understand the atmosphere that Jesus is speaking into. And disciples were confused, almost despondent because it just wasn't going the way they thought it would. You flip over in your Bible just two pages and you see Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem with thousands of people gathered to welcome him. They laid palm branches on the ground and shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. That would have been an incredible day. I guarantee the disciples were thinking, okay, here we go. This movement is really starting to gain some traction. We're getting somewhere. And yet here we are just a couple of days later and everything has changed. The Pharisees are actively plotting against them. People have turned on them. And Jesus keeps talking about leaving. Well, disciples hear that and they think it's over. Well, this whole messianic thing is over. We left everything for this guy and he's talking about leaving. It's done. That's the context of John chapter 14. It's grim. That's why we see Jesus trying to reassure them in the first couple of verses of this chapter. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You believe in God. Believe in me. Trust me. I am going, but, but you better believe that I'm coming back. And when I do, I will take you with me. Don't lose hope. Or keep your eyes fixed on me. Trust me. You, you know the way. He says that to them. You know the way to so just trust me. That's Jesus' reassurance. Which leads us straight into our passage this morning, John chapter 14, verse five, because we get to see how they respond to Jesus's reassurance. John chapter 14, verse five, it's up on the screen for you. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, and we'll get back to that, that word really in particular, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? That's the key. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe in the evidence of the works I have been doing, of the works themselves, sorry. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. That's incredible. Also slightly controversial. Verse 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name. Wow. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. That's an amazing passage of scripture. We pick it up in verse 5 with Thomas doing what he does best. That's why I like him. He's incredibly honest. He reminds me of Anna, of Anna in a lot of ways because he'll just say it. And my wife does exactly the same thing. Now, sometimes that gets you into trouble, but there's an honesty and a vulnerability that can be refreshing. That's Thomas. He's brave enough to say what everyone else is thinking. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, we read that through the lens of the cross and think about heaven. That makes sense to us. Oh, I know what he's talking about. We get it. But that's not what the disciples were thinking about. They weren't picturing the spiritual reality that Jesus was talking about. They're thinking about an actual house somewhere in Jerusalem. And when you think it from about it from that point of view, Thomas's question makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, what do you want from us, Jesus? Google Maps doesn't exist. There's no phones, no GPS. We don't even know where you're going. So how could we possibly know the way? And it's so easy to read that and think, oh, Thomas, you idiot. Don't you understand? How, how can't you grab hold of this? And yet, the vulnerability, the courage, and, and sheer honesty of Thomas is what opened the door for Jesus to reveal more of his character and nature. See, Jesus can do a lot with genuine curiosity. It's apathy and arrogance that he can't stand. So Jesus steps through that door, reveals more of who he is, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the word that's at the center of that statement is the word way. I am the way. Truth and life support that claim, but that doesn't mean they're insignificant. Even in just this one book, we see John saying Jesus is the logos, the word, The revelation of God made manifest. That's John chapter one. We see him talk about the fact that Jesus personifies what it means to live in a fullness of life, and that in him, that life abounds to all who believe. That's a wonderful hope, and all of it adds weight as to why Jesus is the way. He's not just an example to be followed. Although we should follow him, he's the means by which we walk. He speaks and the dead come to life. He is the way. There's a real sense in which Jesus is saying to his disciples, as he says, I am the way, there's a real sense in which he's saying, just keep your eyes fixed on me. I'll worry about the destination. You worry about knowing the way. If you know me, because that word really, I still would come back to it, that word really isn't actually in the Greek. It makes it sound like a rebuke, but I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to do. I think he's trying to encourage them. He says, if you know me, you will know the Father. You do know him and have seen him because you've seen me. Just keep your eyes fixed on me because I am the way. We talked about it before. That's an incredible verse. We love that verse, but we also need to acknowledge that it is simultaneously the most exclusive and inclusive verse in the Bible. John is unapologetic in saying that Jesus is not one way among many. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. That's an exclusive claim. And we just need to be honest about that. We don't help ourselves by trying to hide behind that. It is an exclusive claim, but it's also an incredibly inclusive one because that opens the door to anyone who believes. Anyone, anywhere, can respond in faith to the grace of God and find life in his name. It requires nothing of us. No level of righteousness, no good works at all. And so excludes no one. I think the greatest evidence of that would be the criminals who were crucified either side of Jesus. One of them hurled insults at Jesus saying, you aren't the Messiah. If you are, save yourself and us. And the criminal on the other side rebuked that guy He said, don't you fear God? We are punished justly for what we are getting, what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing. He even says to Jesus, "Remember me when you come into your kingdom." And then Jesus, seeing his faith, says to this criminal who's being punished rightly for his crime, "Truly, I tell you, today you will join me in paradise." I think it's fair to say that guy brought absolutely nothing to the table. You had to do some pretty serious things to be crucified, even under Roman law. So, you've got to understand, this isn't a saint. brings nothing to the table, and yet he had faith. And so, Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, or what you've done. Jesus says, I'm preparing a place for you. And all you need to do is believe. That levels the playing field. Opens the door for anyone, anywhere to come and find life in the name of Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Because here's we get to some of the more controversial parts of this passage. Excuse me. So Philip, listening to this whole thing, chimes in and says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you do not speak of my own authority, rather it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever, that's a very inclusive word, by the way, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so the Father may be glorified in the Son, or you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So we get to verse eight, and it's almost like Philip hears Jesus talking about the Father again and again and just kind of grabs hold of it. That's it, that's that's what we want. We want to see the Father, we want to know him and and encounter him. Jesus, if you just showed us the Father, it would make it so much easier for us to trust you, to know that you've got this thing and that it's not actually falling apart. It's a wonderful heart even if it does completely miss the point. But the thing that jumps out to me more than anything is the kindness of Jesus. He's so kind. Just told them, if you know me, you know my Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it just goes straight over their heads. Completely miss it. And yet Jesus doesn't smash him. He doesn't get frustrated and and write them off like maybe I would. He's so patient, so kind. He just says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, don't you know me? And it's not an exaggeration to say that is the most important question we will ever have to answer. And it could just be that Jesus is asking some of us here this morning that question. Because everything comes back to that reality. You might have been coming to church for years and you might have picked up a whole lot about Jesus along the way, but that doesn't mean you know him. And yet everything comes back to that question, do you know me? The disciples didn't know Jesus, not fully, not yet. They couldn't see him for who he is. And because of that, nothing made sense. The cross, the upside-down kingdom of God, the, the reality that Jesus is coming back for us, none of it makes sense if you don't see Jesus for who he is. So everything comes back to that question. John chapter 14 says to us very clearly he's not just a man. He's not just a prophet or a rabbi or a teacher. He's the king, the king of kings. He lived a life of humility and submission to the father, but that's not about rank or superiority. He did it so that we could see what humanity was always meant to be. For that same reason, Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself. Not of his divinity, but of his power and glory. And yet that's why we get to verse 12. And Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. Because I am going to the Father. Let me be honest for a moment. How many of us actually believe that verse? A lot of people try to explain it away. Oh, Jesus wasn't talking about his miraculous deeds. He was talking about the things he did to love and serve people. And if you put us all together, we're probably washed more feet than Jesus ever did. And that's probably true. Can I say, and this is just me, I honestly think we fall into that trap because we minimize the role of Holy Spirit. And Jesus' works may have been more than just miracles, but they don't exclude them. They don't. And we need to stop giving ourselves an out because Jesus is so clear. Whoever believes in me just the professionals, not just the apostles. That's another way that we try to justify it. He's talking about the apostles. No, whoever believes in me, anyone will do the works that I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these. Not because they're great. No, Jesus doesn't say that. He says, because I am going to the Father. That's the key. That means two things. Number one, we now stand under the new covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus On the cross, Jesus defeated sin, death, and Satan. So the victory has already been won. You don't have to win it. He's already won it. We stand in that victory, and it changes everything. That's the first reason. The second is found just one page over. You flip in your Bible one page, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I go to the Father. How could that be good, Jesus? How could it possibly be a good idea for the leader of a movement to leave? For Jesus, the Son of God made flesh, how could it possibly be good for us, for our benefit, that he would leave? He says, unless I go away, the advocate, which is the Spirit of God, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That's the key. That's what all of this hinges on. It's the Spirit of God that turns that verse from a vain hope to a promised reality. And the evidence of that is the day of Pentecost. Full of the spirit, we see the disciples exercise the power of God, the spirit of God working in and through them, and thousands are changed as a result. In a day. The question is, do we believe it? You know, I caught up with one of my old youth boys recently. It was a couple months ago. I hadn't seen him in like eight years, maybe eight or nine years, something like that. At the time when I knew him, when I was his youth pastor, he was kind of wishy-washy in his faith. But after we left, the Lord really got a hold of this young guy. and He just happened to be over here with Youth for Christ. And we caught up in the cafe just out there. And he was telling me about the amazing things that God had done. He was just so different. He was stark. He was sold out for the kingdom. And he had a real boldness to his faith. So I asked him, What changed? where was the turning point in your life? And he told me a story. He says, I was in Woolies one day doing the shopping, and I heard this lady scream. And I ran over to see what was happening, and she was holding her baby on the ground, and she was yelling, my baby has stopped breathing, which is just awful, right? He had a first aid certificate, so he tried to help, but the baby died. It was just, just awful, just awful, awful circumstance. And then he heard this still small voice and he said, say, pray. Lay hands on the baby and pray. And he was honest with me. He said, you know, I I was terrified. I knew what the Bible talked about, healing and all that kind of stuff, but I'd never actually seen it. And the truth is I was afraid of looking like an idiot. Offending, causing hurt. Which, by the way, I totally understand because I think that would be me too. And yet he took a step of faith. He laid hands on this baby and he prayed. And then the Lord did something miraculous. The baby's lips went from blue to pink and then started breathing. It's an, it's an amazing thing. It's a miracle of God right there in Woolies in the shopping center in Brisbane. It would have changed this family's life forever. What a gift from God for this family. But it changed him as well. Changed him forever. I said to him, you must have been on such a spiritual high. You see the power of God like that? You must have been like just on a spiritual high. He said, you know, know, actually that's not true. I walked away kind of ashamed. Because I realized there was so much in the Bible that I didn't really believe. Not really. And I felt ashamed about that. And so, with a childlike faith, he said, I'm just going to, I'm not going to do that anymore. The Bible says it, I'm going to step out in faith. I'm going to try to walk in obedience. I'm going to believe. I've just seen the power of God and it blew my preconceptions out of the water. Do we believe it? Are we willing to take Jesus at his word? Do we trust him? Because if we do, it challenges our safe, comfortable Christianity like almost nothing else. Remember the context. Helps us understand what Jesus is actually saying, but even more importantly, why? Why is he saying this? Remember, the disciples were confused, almost despondent. They think everything is falling apart. And here Jesus is so clearly saying, this is just the beginning. I'm not finished. I'm just getting started. Can I get in a main men church that he's still at work? But I'm going to the Father so that you might have the Spirit. And as you walk with me in his power, you will see the kingdom of God break through this is just the beginning. Our great hope is that Jesus is still at work. It is our great hope. It's not me, it's not Nick, it's not anybody, not any individual here, although we love and need each and every person. No, our great hope is Jesus, that He's still at work. If not for that true reality, this is pointless. Jesus is still at work. That's so why he says at the end of this passage, I will do whatever you ask in my name. It's because he hasn't checked out. He's not on holiday. He's here. He's active. He's still at work. And yet here's the tension. That's an incredible promise. But don't get a twisted church. It doesn't turn Jesus into some kind of magical genie. He's not saying you can pray for whatever you want to pray and then just slap my name on it and that'll be good. That's how we use it a lot of the time. If we're honest, that's how we use it. But that's not what he's saying. Nick spoke about this just a couple of weeks ago. He had a quote from Maker, which was just spot on. Ridiculous name, by the way. (laughs) We'll let it slide because the quote is good. He says the term, the word name, in the name, name, it signifies the person, words, and works of Jesus. So that anyone who uses the name identifies completely with its bearer and becomes a true representative in prayer. In other words, if you want to pray in Jesus' name, you better be praying something that Jesus would pray. Because that's what it means. It's not a sticker that you slap on that gives you a a pass that makes sure it gets answered. That's not what it is. In his name. Which brings us back to the heart of this passage and the question that Jesus is asking each and every one of us this morning. How could we possibly hope to pray effectively in his name if we don't even know him? And just doesn't make sense. So hear the voice of Jesus this morning as he asks each and every one of us, do you know me? Do you know me? I want to invite the band to come back up and lead us in worship. If I could summarize this passage down into a sentence, I would say, don't settle for the name, know the person, and you will know the power of God. Don't settle for the name. Know the person, and you will know the power of God. That's incredibly encouraging, but it's also challenging. You want to see the power of God in and through prayer? Get about knowing Jesus walk intimately with Jesus. Spend more time listening, more time seeking his heart, his character and nature, less time talking. Less time trying to twist his arm into doing what you want him to do because I can guarantee you, church, he's still at work. He is. Even the fruitfulness and the kingdom breakthrough that Jesus is talking about in verse 12, which kind of blows our mind, even that is connected to those who believe in him. So you want to walk in the power of the Spirit? Go deeper with Jesus. He'll do the rest. He sent the Spirit. It's a gift to know him, and he'll do the rest. That's my prayer for you this morning that you would know Jesus in a way you've never known him before. That he would reveal himself to you in a fresh and beautiful way because the scales have been removed from your eyes and you see him for who he is. And all of his power and glory. You see him. You bow your heads with me this morning. And I get the feeling that maybe some of you here this morning might be feeling like the disciples were feeling in the upper room. You're here. The truth is you're you're running low on hope. Our society is pushing God further and further away. There's a whole bunch of people post-COVID who just never came back. And even though I believe that Jesus is still at work, I'm struggling to see it. this is our prayer. Father, during this next song, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us in a powerful way. We pray that you would renew our hope and that right here, right now, we would experience the in-breaking kingdom of God and everything that goes along with that. We want to know you, Jesus. So we pray open our eyes that we might see I'm just going to let you sit in that moment in that prayer Jesus open our eyes that we might see this podcast brought to you from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. Our prayer is that what was said today inspires you and strengthens you in your faith. If you would like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, you can contact the team during office hours on the number you can find on our website at mounties.org.au. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to having your company again soon. God bless.